Hi, welcome to valuationpodcast.com, a podcast and video series about all things related to business and valuation. My name is Melissa Gregg, and I'm a divorce valuation expert and mediator in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we'll discuss why valuation expert opinions differ and the value of a rebuttal expert with Matt Steltzman, an expert in forensic litigation and valuation work in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who also serves clients in Atlanta and around the country. Welcome, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So you do a lot of work, uh, litigation support work, which is what we call it kind of in the valuation world. Um, And so I wanted, you know, one of the big things that happens in um, valuation cases is we kind of do what I call traditional valuation, or you do valuation under the constructs of litigation. And so when it comes to, and then if you're doing it in litigation, you're kind of working as an expert witness. And so when you're working as an expert witness and you're giving expert testimony, there usually seems to be like two areas that everybody works in. This regular area um, that could be for estate planning and then litigation like economic damages, lost profits, wrongful death. So if we start talking about valuation services for litigation purposes, we then now typically have two experts that are hired. So each party will hire an expert. But now we have that they come to either deposition or something like that with vastly different conclusions. Like it could be millions of dollars apart. So how do we start to reconcile or if we can start to expand on some of the reasons why this might happen and how attorneys might be able to start to look at what are the kind of normal areas that experts start to have a difference of opinion? Yeah. So I do a lot of uh, CLE and CPE teaching on this exact um, topic been going around the country um, doing these presentations pretty frequently. Um, So what I found is that there are four real main areas that that can cause um, evaluation expert to differ from the opposing side. Um, So I want to go over uh, those four and get a little bit more detail into um, each each one of them. Uh, But first, I think we need to understand that as appraisers, essentially what we're doing is we're, we're offering estimates of value. We're estimating what the value of the, the business is based upon the factors that we put in. So um, a lot of our value is based upon, you know, it's based upon some hard facts, but at the same time, it's based upon the research that we do as professionals. So we've got to ensure that uh, when we go through and do that research, we're finding the answers to all the questions that we have. That's first and foremost. Um, so that in general um, leads into these these more specific topics about why our opinion differs in these, these uh, four areas. So the first uh, thing I want to do is I want to define how you come up with value. And it's a very simplistic um, formula. I mean, essentially all you're doing is you're taking some form of earnings or cash flow and you're multiplying it by multiple. And how you derive those is is far more complicated, but overall, that's what you're doing. You're coming up with a total value for the company, and then we apply 
um, what we refer to in the business as, as discounts that are applicable depending upon what the ownership interest is that you're valuing. Um, so let's talk first about cash flows. Now, this is the first area where the attorney or the opposing um, expert is going to want to dive into um, the opposing report and kind of see what assumptions that they made. Um, were they looking at historic cash flows or were they looking at uh, projected cash flows? And of course, as you know, um, businesses are based upon the present value of future cash flows, um, but you can use historic cash flows if you think that the future is going to look similar to the past. Um, another way to do it is also to have the business owner forecast out what they think those future cash flows are going to be based upon operations. A lot of times that will happen. Um, if you're looking at a business that plans on changing something significantly, um, you'll have to forecast out and say, okay, well, what does the company look like going forward? Um, so that's the first area that you're going to want to look at. And, and what, what you typically find is an expert will come in, either take, and it typically happens with historic cash flows. Um, they're going to look at what happened over the, uh, say, last five years. They're going to apply adjustments to that. Now, whether that's, you know, adjustments for controlling purposes. You know, you have a an owner who is paying himself, you know, a million dollars, whereas the the going rate for his role is, you know, two hundred thousand. That makes the bottom line look smaller. You would adjust those cash flows back in. Um, other various adjustments. Uh, you know, we can go on and on about what those should be. Um, but what you're looking at is what adjustments were made to those cash flows in order for them to come up with their cash flow base or their earnings base that they're going to multiply or apply the multiple to. So that's what we're talking about with um, the cash flows. You know, it's it's the adjustments that are made and, and the growth rates that's considered uh, in those cash flows. And no uh, two expert typically looks at the adjustments the same, which kind of creates this first, you know, I mean, if you're ha if you have a cash flow multiplied by risk or divided by risk, however you want to look at it, then, and two experts are looking at the starting point different, you off the gate have a difference of an opinion that, you know, like it's going to be the fork in the road and just continues to get wider, right? Correct. If you, if you take the difference in the cash flow, and then you take the difference in the multiple, which we'll get to here in a second, and there's, you know, there's a difference between both of them. That's just going to be compounded when you come to the ending or the resulting value between the two experts. So, yeah, it can it, small amounts and small tweaks in valuation can make huge um, changes in value, which I'll I'll talk about here in a second when we get into the rate. Um, so this so we talked about cash flow. The second um, area that you're going to want to focus on uh, as the attorney or the opposing expert is um the, the cap rate or the discount rate, um, essentially it is the measure of risk. So if I'm going to invest in a company, I want to earn some type of return on that investment. Usually it's higher than what you're go going to receive if you invest in some kind of stock. Um, so let's assume for a second, um, you know, that we're talking about a, a 20% uh, rate of return. Um, that's the required rate of return for me to invest in ABC company because of the risk that it is associated with it. So 20%, if we convert that into a multiple, you just do one divided by the rate, uh, that will give you a multiple of five. Okay, so 20% is a multiple of five. So let's say we had cash flows of a million dollars. A million dollars times five gives you $5 million. 
So built into that 20% rate is, a, is are various factors that the, that the appraiser um, considers when he's going through and determining what risk is associated with this company. And one of those areas is company specific risk. Now you have other factors that come into play and a lot of those you can find in, in various texts and things like that, um, which are, you know, if you talk to certain valuation professionals, everybody's going to say that everything's debatable, but a lot of those items are uh, more solid and, and you can point to it and say, you know, here's where I got the number. But when it comes to company specific risk, what you're going to find is a lot of appraisers like to operate in the gray. So is it 2%? Is it negative 1%? Is it 4%? Um, what sometimes you'll find is that the appraiser will apply a subjective rate to it, or they'll use the company specific rate, uh, rate as a plug to get to a number that they want. Um, so this is an area where as an appraiser or a, an attorney, you're going to want to go in and have them justify, well, why did you use the rate that you used? So as I used uh, the example earlier, the 20% the or the five multiple, that's assuming, let's, just, let's say that that assumes a 2% company specific risk in there. So if I'm the other side and I say, well, I don't think it should be 2%. I think it should be 0%. Well, that drops my rate from 20% down to 18% rate of return. Well, that bumps up my multiple from a five to a five and a half. So if we have a million dollars in cash flow, my value uh, using the 20% was 5 million. And now my value is 5.5 million. I just increased it $500,000 by, by changing a little factor by, by 2%. If I increase that rate, which I, that means I've um, uh, increased the rate of return, then my multiple goes to a four and a half and it drops down to 4.5 million. So I just have a swing of a million dollars on a million dollar company that has you know, a company that has a million dollars in cash flow. Uh, the value is swinging by a million dollars just by tweaking one little area of a percent. Now, if you if you couple that with a change in, you know, let's say I had a million dollar cash flow and you had, you know, eight hundred thousand. Well, that's going to be amplified even more. So what you want to look at when we're talking about uh, the cap rate is you're going to want to get specifics as to why the appraiser did what they did. And can they back that up? Uh, the third area um, is discounts. Now, discounts vary all over the board. And this is where you're going to find probably the most uh, subjectivity coming into play. A lot of people, you know, they just cite old um, uh, studies that have been done and say, well, you know, here's a study, here's a study. We're going to just say it's 25%. Um, there are multiple databases out there that will let you um, plug in information um, to come up with, with what uh, discounts should be. Um, you should be considering things like operating agreement, what restrictions are put in place on the uh, share the, the shares that are being sold. So a lot goes into the discount section of, of a uh, report. So that's another area that you're going to have to get um, very detailed into what, uh, what discounts were applied and why were they applied and what was considered in applying them. You know, you have discounts such as uh, discounts for lack of control lack of marketability. You have very small percentages for voting and non-voting. Um, it ranges key person uh, blockage discounts, all types of things that can come into place based upon the uh, specific aspects 
of your company. And then finally, um, we get into the fourth category. And the fourth category is just really professional incompetence. So what, what do I mean by that? Well, these are people that you've got two different, really two different categories that I've put them in. Um, the first one are the people who have just been certified. I kind of look at it like people who graduate college with an accounting degree. They're ready to conquer the world. They, they got their accounting degree. They're ready to do accounting. And then when they walk into the accounting firm, they realize they have no idea what's going on. Um, similar to, to valuation professionals, you go in, you, you go to your the course, you get certified in it and you're ready to conquer the world. And then you get out there and you realize uh, I haven't worked on it in real time. Um, so what happens is there's a lot of mistakes or considerations that aren't really uh, made when doing their valuations. So a new professional um, really benefits from having someone experienced uh, kind of in their back pocket to, you know, say, did I do this right? Did I do, did I do this wrong? How do I do this? Uh, what do I need to improve? Um, the second area is uh, the professionals who, who dabble in this work, the people that are doing them, you know, three or four a year. Um, they don't have anybody looking over their work. Uh, they, they do the same thing over and over again. And since they do so few, they usually don't get called out for mistakes that they make. So those mistakes just continue to happen time after time. These individuals aren't always being um, or they're not always brave enough to get into court and testify on their their reports. They're usually doing from for gift and estate tax, which can also get called out as well. Um, but these are the professionals that uh, don't really they don't know what they don't know. So so it's hard to um, ask the questions if you don't know the questions to ask. So let me give you a, a couple of examples. Um, I got a call from uh, an individual who is an accountant. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm having these valuations done. Um, there should I be considering the excess working capital, the working capital that the company has that they don't really need for operations? Should that be considered in my valuation? I'm like, yes, you should. You should consider that. He's like, should I be concerned that our people aren't asking us about this? And I said, well, they're not going to because they don't know to ask you that question. Um, so that's that's one of the dangers of having people in internally who say they do this work, but really they they just kind of do it on the side. Um, uh, another example of someone who dabbles in this is uh, I was in a case that involved a beer distributor and they hired a guy who um, he did transaction work solely. So he only he only sold. Uh, controlling interests of companies. And they brought him in to come up with what the value of a minority interest is in the distributor. Um, what he didn't take into consideration in his valuation is it's not just the controlling value divided by the number of shares that he's valuing. You have distribution rights that, you know, the, the manufacturer, the brewery owns, and, you know, those aren't freely transferable. So there were some issues in there that, again, he didn't have any valuation certification. He didn't do any of that training. He just did transactions. And those uh, transactions weren't really comparable to what we were valuing um, at the time. Uh, I've seen issues where uh, you have 
people who are valuing minority interest. You know, I had a case where uh, the individual was valuing 44% interest in a company and, and wouldn't apply a discount from, for uh, lack of control. Why that was the case, not really sure, um, but that was an, an instance. And then finally, this one was one of my favorites is we were working on a case with a, uh, it was a uh, automobile dealership and uh, the other side was trying to come up with the value of the company and they just could not get it to where he thought it should be. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to take their sales and I'm going to multiply it times a market um, percentage of what the profitability should be. And then I'm just going to value that. So essentially what he did was he just made up his own company and then valued it and said, well, here's the value of the company if it was operating um, on an average basis and not taking into any consideration the, the market it was operating in, the, the dealer who was running the business, anything that had anything to do with this specific company. And so you run into things like this that cause issues on the other side. And those are the things that you need to be aware of um, when you're looking at the other side's valuation reports. Well, and I think it becomes really clear to us, you know, I mean, if you're doing 50 to 100 plus valuations a year, you're seeing enough different types of businesses, um, you know, you're seeing different cap rates, different growth rates and things like that. But I think a lot of times what happens is you have two really smart, you know, like two good CVs, right? You have two experts that have the skills, the credentials, the knowledge have been doing this for a long time. And so the judge kind of looks at like, well, you know, you have a version, they have a version, you both have these versions, whereas I come in and say, you know what, no, I'm really there to help educate the judge on the facts. And I think that sometimes when you get in a situation where somebody's saying the cap rate should be 40% and another person saying the cap rate should be 20%, you have to start getting back into logic. You know, mm -hmm. so we spend so much time on the valuation theory and really doing what we believe is a correct analysis of the data and the information. But then we have to fall back on logic. And I think sometimes I use that it with a judge that, you know, they're looking at the other expert and you're saying, well, you think it's 5%, he thinks it's 7%, and it seem, both seem reasonable. Yeah. I think then you have to layer in, you know, you said it briefly, what is your backup? You know, like, I'm usually trying to have some other third party say that this is, you know, this input is correct, right? This input is correct, and then come back on logic. Um, to the judge, because it is hard to distinguish what is right or righter um, in this land of subjectiveness, don't you think? Yeah, you you run into, you know, you you like to believe that everyone is is trying to be honest and um, upfront with with their reports, but the reality is 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 a lot of people out there are using. Um, they, they look at it more as, well, it's a range. So if, you know, if he is at, you know, $10 million and I think it could be somewhere between 10 and 12, well, I can go to the 12 and it'll be all right. Um, because again, this is just estimating value and it's dependent upon the assumptions that I make. Um, you know, in that, in that beer distributor case that I was talking about, um, 
I honestly, I feel like they just they brought in this guy with such an astronomical number just to bring our number up. You know, it's like you said, a lot of the times you just assume that the judge is going to what I call split the baby. So basically, you know, I've got 10 million. They've got 15 million. OK, it's going to be somewhere at the, the in the 12 million dollar mark. Um, but that's not always the case. I mean, a lot of times we have uh, been in court to where, um, you know, maybe the judge will use. Uh, the other side's cash flow, but my side's um, uh, cap rate or something along those lines. I've had that happen in the past. And what that ends up doing is it looks like the judge has split it. But really, in that situation, the value came down really, really close to the number that I had rather than the other side. So they might pick and choose based upon, again, like you said, the the backup that you have. Um the judge might find that the opposing expert uh, explained their their um, uh, company specific risk better than you did. And OK, so they had a two percent in there. You had a one percent. We'll just go with theirs and then we'll use your cash flow. And I've seen that happen quite a bit. But like you said, the backup of what you're saying and, and if you can provide these materials and say, hey, I didn't just make this up. Here's the databases I pulled from. Here is the assumptions I made. Here's a schedule of everything that I considered when I did the company specific risk. This is the result. Goes a lot further than just getting up there and saying, well, based upon my experience of 20 years and and my um, analysis that I didn't provide, I think it should be two. I mean, it's just it's just easier for the judge to take something with them. And that's something I'm big on is give some give the judge something to walk away with that they can read over again. And they can follow along and say, okay, this is how he got from A to Z. I'm more, I'm, I believe that they're more interested in that than just, it's my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And I think that running, I think sometimes running additional analyses, you know, like during the pandemic, we've had, for me, I think that we just have to go back to hyper analyzing the situation. So what was the situation pre pandemic? What is the situation during pandemic? And what's going to be the situation after the pandemic? And understanding that not all companies have been have gone bankrupt. There's a lot of companies that are excessively, you know, like doubling their revenue and things like that that you also have to explain what does that, how does that, and what does that do to value? Whereas if you're just kind of going in and just doing what you've always done in the past, and you're just like, you know, according to my 25 years of knowledge, this is what it is. I think that that leaves, you will leave yourself as an expert really exposed for another expert to come in and say, okay, well, I have a different of a difference of opinion, but look at these three articles that have been written about it. Look what Shannon Pratt said about it. Look what all the greats said about it. And then they come back and say, okay, you know, maybe it, is it really relying upon my opinion or is it relying upon the fact that I showed you how this is corresponding and correlating with other people's opinions in this field? Do you think it's ever beneficial to bring that additional data into the, to the, uh, your testimony? It's all, I think it's always great to bring in anything that can support your, your position. You know, it, this pandemic has, has caused kind of a seesaw effect. So, you know, whereas you have these companies that are 
you know, let's just look at um, retail. You know, I'm sure retail sales have plummeted during this time period, the, the, the brick and mortar stores. But if you look at Amazon, it is soaring. So, you know, whereas some are falling off on one side of the, the seesaw, the other is being lifted up. And so, like you said, not everybody is being damaged during this time period. So why is it that your company is doing better or worse? Well, we've got to find backup that supports what it is that we're claiming is happening. And the fact is that a lot of professionals just don't go that far, whether it's because they don't feel they need to, whether it's because they don't know to or whether it's a budget issue. Um, all of those play key roles in, in valuation work. So. Um, like you said, I think you need to have that backup information to say, this is why I came to the conclusion I came to. The more information you have, of course, you don't want to overload them, but the more information you have supporting your position, the better you're going to look. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think you can't just, you know, that, that being said though, that there are, there are areas of valuation that is just subjective. You know, I mean, this isn't an exact science. And so there are some areas that go towards the um, valuator's credibility. But that's where I really think you have to introduce other industry data and other data. You know, like we'll we'll even look at a, a business and say, OK, because a lot of times in divorce, there's a lot of mistrust. Right. Yeah. And so we're really looking at, OK, is this business owner really running the business as would be normal, or is there something else going on? And so I think it does create some additional analysis. Sometimes it's to just help a, a spouse understand that there's not funny business going on. Um, but I, I agree, it's not really the client's responsibility to pay you enough to get the right value. It's for you to understand what's your threshold of reasonableness. You know, I did enough in this area. I think this is reasonable, not just for this company, but what I've seen. And if you're seeing hundreds of valuations, then you do have a cross section to compare it to. Um, mm -hmm. But I think just going in and not having any backup is kind of difficult. Um, but there's also things, you know, if we start to look at um, you know, business valuations and how we go about creating a valuation. There's a lot of standards that a valuation professional has to follow when developing their valuation. And it's these standards fall under each of their credentials. And if you have multiple credentials, you kind of have to look at all the standards. But if we understand that there are certain reporting standards for valuations in a litigation purpose, but they could be waived, um, and then we go to do litigation support services for like economic damages and lost profits, which is even less regulated, what are some of the issues you're seeing with professional work product and why do you think there is such a difference between expert opinions in this situation? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think you hit on something that's interesting with the, the, the standards. So like you said, under litigation, um, a lot of the standards in terms of reporting are waived, but the development standards are still there. So you're supposed to go through the same standards that you would typically um, use when doing evaluation for any purpose. Um, when you're deriving what the value is. So, you know, the research and all that that comes into play with um, 
under the standards of evaluation for any purpose should be applied for, for litigation. However, when it comes to reporting, um, those are those are typically waived for evaluation uh, work that you're doing for uh, litigation. Um, but you, when it comes to litigation work in general, whether it's uh, you know economic damages, lost profits, anything along those lines, in addition to the valuation for litigation purposes, um, you know, you really, I kind of like to think of it of of how does this play out in a normal scenario. So when I get a call from an attorney. Um, typically it goes something like, hey, we've got this case. I'm going to give you a brief overview um, and they'll talk to you for a few minutes and they'll say, hey, can can you come in? Um, we'd like to meet with you and go over a little bit more specific about the information that we have and, you know, kind of what the case is about. And so you go down to the attorney's office and, you know, the attorney's there or attorneys, multiple attorneys, um, and maybe the client's there as well. And you go in and they kind of give you the, the lay of the land. You know, here's what the case is about um, and here's all of our information. And it never fails that they throw in, you know, this is what we think um, uh, we're looking at here. And you've got to remember, I think the first thing you have to remember when you're walking in that door is that attorneys are advocates for their client. So you have two groups of people in front of you. You have the client who is clearly an advocate for themselves. Then you've got the attorney who it, they are paid to be the advocate for the client. So you're walking into a room of people who already have a bias on which that which, which way they want you to go. Now, I'm fortunate enough to where I work with a lot of attorneys who are very good about not pushing that on to me. Um, I can't really think of a time where I've, I've had that, but it, it, it does exist. Um, and I'll get to an example here in a minute. Um, but what you have to do is you have to um, listen to what the attorney and the client are providing you in terms of information and the story that they're telling you. And, you know, you have to ask questions. You know what? Again, they're going to tell you the information that they want you to hear you. It's your job to dig out the information that might be under the surface that either they don't want you to hear or they just have failed to mention or three. They don't know to mention it. So this is where experience comes into play, and we'll get into that category here in a minute. Um, it allows you to ask the questions um, that aren't, uh, or, or get the information through questions that aren't, that isn't being shared with you um, yet. Um, so once you realize that they're an advocate and they're put there on uh, their side of the fence, and that it is your job to be in the middle, um, you can start to kind of work through the information that they've provided. So. Um, let me give you an example. There's a case that that I am currently working on um, where they provided us a, a lot of information. And part of that information was a QuickBooks file. So I went through the, the QuickBooks file. Um, and again, there was some information that, that their side had already put together. And um, so I had access to that. Um, but I, like everything else I do, I go through and I verify. Even if I have a, a spreadsheet of here is how they did it from A to Z. I'm going to go through and verify um, because again, it's 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 my work product. I'm supposed to be coming up with the the uh, the damages amount, so I need to do the, the legwork. So went through and found that a lot of the information that was on there just it wasn't supportable. It wasn't it, it couldn't be part of the damages amount. So call up the attorney. Here's what I found. I can't include these. Sorry, it's going to reduce the damages. Um, but the value I bring to that, uh, 
case is there was a scenario that they didn't think of. There were pre-judgment uh, interest uh, amounts that, that didn't come into play yet. So I was able to calculate that, add it up to millions of dollars that you add on that they didn't previously consider. So yes, I lowered the value on the damages side, but I also increased it even more because pre-judgment interest wasn't considered whatsoever. So as an as a expert, it is your job to go, not only go in and um, discover what it is that they've pointed out, but also look at the scenario and decide if there's additional items that they aren't thinking about. Because remember, you're the financial expert. That's why they hired you. If they, if they knew all of this stuff, they would just go through and, and present it themselves. And, and that would be the end of the, end of the case. So it's your job to figure out if there's value to be added, um, what that value is, and then report that back to them. Um, let's see. And again, in the questions that you ask, the attorney will determine the adjustments that should be made. So um, uh, like I said before, when I go through and I, and I was looking at this case, I, I said, okay, well, have we even considered any kind of uh, prejudgment interest because this money was supposed to be paid four years ago and it hasn't been paid. So let's, let's consider that. So that's the, uh, just relying on what the, the attorneys tell you. Uh, the next category is um, relying, relying upon the information that is provided. So a lot of times um, professional, uh, financial professionals will get the information from the attorneys and they'll say, okay, here's the information. Um, I don't need to do anything else. I'm just going to go through and figure out what they, you know, based upon what they provided me, what is the output? That's just basically being a human calculator. Um, that's not what why they hired you. Um, so what I typically do, and like I said before, a lot of times when you talk to attorneys, they give you the, their view of the lay of the land. And that might be in, in the form of a spreadsheet. Uh, you know, here's a spreadsheet to where, you know, we went through this information, we calculated this number, here you go. Um, it's your job to go through and vet that. It's your job, like I said, to go through and, and confirm that what they provided you um, was accurate. So um, ask questions, follow the rabbit trails that come up during your questioning, because that's an important part of the litigation case is the discussion with the client, understanding why um, they're in litigation, what happened, and then based upon your experience doing this work with other clients, um, applying those specific aspects to this case and saying, well, okay, we did prejudgment interest in another case. We're going to apply it here. You guys didn't think about it, um, but it is relevant. Um, you know, I, I, another story, I have a friend who uh, I used to work with who is no longer at the firm that we, we both used to be at. And he called me up recently and said, Hey, and it's funny because the first thing when I answer the phone, I'm like, hello. And he's like, um, have you ever felt like you're on the wrong side of a case? And, you know, I, I, I was sitting there thinking and I said, you know what? I, I honestly don't. I don't feel like I've ever been on the wrong side of a case. Now, I do feel like there has been aspects of the of the case that I would view as hurdles. Um, but in his case, he was like, I just feel like. I feel like I'm not being told everything. And I said, okay, here's what you need to do. You need to first understand from the attorney what your role is. You need to understand what your scope is because his issue was he wasn't receiving the information he asked for. So he's like, I asked for all this information and I'm not getting it from my own attorney. 
And I said, well, here's the deal is the attorney, they have their own um, objective here. And the reason why they might not be providing you with information is because they don't want to provide it to the other side. So um, if that, if that hasn't been produced yet, they're not going to give it to you. And if that's the case, then you need to go back into the attorney and say, my, the scope of my testimony has changed. I can't testify on something that I don't have information for. And if your intent is to not give me this information because you don't want to provide to the other side, I understand that, but we need to change the scope of my testimony. And so I, I believe that that's what he did. I can't, I don't think I followed up with him yet, but um, in that case, the attorneys have different objectives than you might as an expert. So talking with the attorneys and understanding what the scope is for your role in that case is a very, very important thing. Um, so uh, that was one of the stories. And then there was another issue that, that I, another case that I was involved in that involved when we walked in and spoke with the attorneys, we went through the case. They said, here's what we uh, need you to calculate in terms of here's the information, just come up with what you think the, the damages are. And as we were talking through it, we kept coming back to this one issue. We're like, how are you going to get past this issue? And they're like, that's not for you guys to worry about. Um, this is an issue that we're having to deal with. And it didn't, it didn't impact us. What it was going to do is if they couldn't get over that hurdle, it didn't matter what we did. Um, our, our number would never come into play. Um, it had to do with insurance and the insurance company and whether they had coverage at all. And if they, right. if they didn't get over that hurdle and they didn't have coverage, then our damages really doesn't matter because the, the insurance company wasn't going to cover them anyway. So we kept pointing that out and they said, hey, this, that's not uh, for you to worry about. But that was another scenario where we saw that there was an objective, but we only played a small portion in the overall scope of what the attorney was doing. And it's important to understand um that about when you go into a case that that's you're only playing a small role in that. And then finally, again, um, the professional incompetence. So when you're dealing with a litigate, a person, an expert who's serving in a uh, litigation role, um, the attorneys have to understand that they, they live in the uh, realm of law every day and the financial experts don't. Um, so there's a lot of aspects about litigation cases that you can only understand through experience and, and unfortunately living it the hard way, um, you know, getting caught on certain things that you didn't know existed. You know, uh, for example, uh, in Tennessee, and I don't know if it's everywhere, you know, in terms of uh, interest expense, you can't use compounded interest. You have to use simple interest. So it's things like that that you might not understand that, you know, you throw it out there and you say, hey, I calculated interest on on this. Um, uh, damages amount. And here's the, the amount. And the attorney's like, awesome. We've got the damages. We've got interest. You go to court. They didn't even think to look if you use compounding or, sim or simple interest. So, and then the other side is like, well, you see this, this court document says you can't use compounding. And all of a sudden you've learned a lesson. Um, so there's certain aspects to litigation that you've got to understand through just experience. Um, let's see. Uh, and again, you are the professional. So you've got to, again, um, uphold your end of the bargain in terms of uh, uh, expressing what it is that you're good at and then falling back on the attorney uh, for them to kind of guide you through the legal aspects of it. 
Uh, one final example of uh, this was we were in a, a court case and the opposing um, expert, it was evaluation, and the opposing expert used one year of earnings to, to, to capitalize, to come up with the value of the company. So they used the most recent earnings. And again, the earnings had been kind of up and down throughout the years, throughout the five years. And just so happens that the uh, other expert used the highest year, which was the most recent year. And that's the only year that this professional used. What she didn't understand is that there's a court case out there, uh, the Blassingame versus American Materials, that says that if you don't use, if you don't consider at least three years of, of earnings in your uh, valuation, you better have a you better have a good reason or it's going to get thrown out. So um, that was presented to her. She didn't know that it existed, and that caused a good dent in in her testimony um, because she just considered the highest year. So that makes you look biased. Um, so it's it's scenarios like that that you need to have the experience in doing the litigation work in order to even know what you don't know, like we talked about earlier. Absolutely. I mean, you brought up a bunch of different interesting issues. I think for me, the key ones are, you know, and we talked about this briefly is like, are you part of the team as the expert or not? You know, and going in a lot of times, even when the attorneys tell me the story at the beginning, I feel like they're prepping for how they're going to present the story to the judge, right? You know, and so it's a little bit more flagrant, it's a little bit more. And we have a tendency to, I think, as as you get more expertise in being a litigation expert, you start to step back and say, okay, there's three sides to every story. So I, I'm hearing one, and then I can see what the documents say. I can see what the other side says. Um, but you really do have to kind of pressure test all of the conclusions and all of the documents and ask questions. Because I think we we sometimes erroneously think that people are keeping information from us, but they don't always know what's important to us, you know? And so really having, you know, sometimes you have these longer um, document requests and people are like, why do you need all this information? Well, you know, sometimes I don't need it. If there's no litigation happening, you know, if you're not, if you don't have any non-recurring things that happen, but a lot of times that people don't know what those mean. And so you just, you, you do the document request, but then you have to go back in and say, okay, let's talk about these things. Have you ever had a partner that you bought in or out? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I did have that happen. Oh, I just had an offer the other day, you know, and, and things like that, that they, I don't think people are always trying to, go around the system, but you definitely have to know um, what part you play, but what part you play usually is based on your own reputation. And so if you're continuously brought in to have a favorable position um, for any sort of party, because I like to say that I'm, I'm, I really don't care about any of the parties. Like I'm going in with my reputation and I'm going in with a report that if I handed to you, Matt, you would be like, eh, I mean, it's pretty, you know, I can't find a lot of problems with it. I definitely don't want to come in with a report where you're like, what 
the like the red flags because the red flags are only going to be for another valuation person. Mm -hmm. Only somebody that's way down the rabbit hole of understanding valuations is going to see the red flags in my report. But that's the issue is that you're create that then to me signals bias in some respect. And so really thinking it through from all the sides and saying, okay, if I average these three, if I average these five, if I looked at a descending average, if I look for a different weighted average, like what creates the range? Because if there's somewhere in there that it gives you just a pop too high or a pop too low, and there's all different ways to look at it, and they're all kind of in this reasonable land, but you choose something that gets you in those areas, that appears biased. Whether or not it is, the appearance is enough, right? Yeah. And and I think the beauty of um, testimony, it, it's, it's, it gets really easy, um, testimony does, when what you produce is really what you believe. So if I go through and I do a report, and I honestly believe that um, the best representation of ongoing cash flows is a straight average of the last five years. Then when I'm asked about that and they say, well, why didn't you do a weighted average? Well, I used it, the straight average, uh, the arithmetic average, because I believe that it, to be honest, and here's why, you know, it's been going up and down over the years and, you know, a weighted average would, would, would put the most weight on the most recent year, which I don't think um, fully represents on and on and on about um, why it is that you chose what you chose. If you are trying to testify on something that you don't believe to be true, it is very hard to come across as believable or even know what you're talking about when you're doing the testimony work. So I hear a lot of people who always say they get nervous when they go in and testify. And I understand, you know, I don't know if you ever really get rid of that. You know, when you're doing the testimony at the beginning, um, you seem pretty nervous, but it, it seems to settle down if you're testifying on stuff that you truly believe on, uh, believe in. And, you know, these people that say I get so nervous, I'm like, all you're doing is going in and talking about what you did. Mm-hmm. And if they're either going to believe your, your position or they're not, there's, it's not your job to go in and convince them of something that you don't believe to, to be true. Just go in and talk about what you do. Right. And, and I kind of catch some of that when I'm reviewing the report to finalize it, to give to, you know, to all the parties and I'll get to some nuance, some um, assumption and I'll say, okay, well, what's my rationale for this assumption? And I'm like, because with my professional opinion, Mm -hmm. it makes sense. And so I'm like, okay, if that's it, if that's it, then maybe that's not the right um, assumption. You know, if it's if there is no other um, piece of evidence that I can look to, you know, they, they for working capital, they've always had extensive, you know, uh, cash in the company. They just always have. They've held it in there. They've had millions. A lot of old uh, businesses just keep that money in the bank, right? Okay, but is that necessary for operations? You know, like when I'm looking at anything, I think you got to look at all sides if it's in litigation. And that's just the difference. If you're just doing a value to a business owner for strategic planning, you know, I'll have them say, well, I, I think it's worth way more. Okay. I think that's great. Let's talk about a concept called strategic value as opposed to fair market value. You know, like we can talk all day long about this, but in litigation, I think if there, if you get to an assumption and there's all this data that the assumption should be different, 
than what you decided upon, those are the areas that you have to internally check and say, okay, well, am I making that decision based on logic or am I just making it because it makes the numbers work? You know, yeah. that that's the questioning that we go through as experts because I know where they're going to hang me out to dry. And I think that I'm always willing, I kind of use the analogy, like I'm always willing to go out further on a limb, but I want it to be a nice sturdy branch. And at the point that I think it's going to break, I can't go that far. It's mm -hmm. not going to be in your best interest as the client um, for me to put myself out to get to get you a couple hundred thousand dollars more or millions more because it's going to look and appear biased and that's not going to help your case. And I'm not really there to win your case. Like legally, you need to win your case. I'm just coming in. If all of that legal stuff is true and you have a case, then here is the number that results, right? Yeah. And, and I'm going to throw accountants under the bus because I've worked at an accounting firm my whole career. So 20, 20 years um, I've worked with accountants. Um, and I'm just going to use them as an example. When you find a lot of times when um, accountants kind of dabble in this work, they're used to acting as advocates for their clients. So a lot of times they're doing a lot of services to where, you know, whether it's transaction work and they're trying to get the most value for their, their client or, you know, they're doing some kind of tax work where they're trying to be, you know, get, have the lowest tax bill, whatever it is that they're doing has a tendency to bleed over into the litigation realm. So what I have heard a lot of when, when accountants are doing litigation work is they seem to be very concerned about pleasing their client. Um, and that becomes very dangerous um, when your uh, definition of success is if your client is happy or not. Um, your, your objective should be to go in and find the right answer. But so many times I've seen them go in and say, well, let's, let's skew this in their favor um, because, you know, they're our client. And that's, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be because, again, when you go in to testify on it, it might not make as much sense as it does in your head when you're trying to explain it to a judge and say, well, I chose this. And then the, the opposing attorney is like, well, look at this sheet of paper that, um, you know, has this percent on it. Would you, should you not have used this? And you're like, well, yeah, I should have. Why didn't you? Well, you know, I was, you don't have an answer for it. So I found that when you serve in an advocate role in another area, that bleeds over into, into the work that you do for litigation and it becomes more difficult. I've never really thought of it like that. I think I, I completely agree. I even take it one step further. And before a client has hired me, because I work with, a, you know, we work with a lot of attorneys over and over, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they get to know how we work. They get to know. Um, and and the thing is, attorneys will, will act like they know exactly what you're saying, but they don't want to say that they don't know what you're saying. So you sometimes have to keep that in mind as you deal with clients and the attorneys. But I'll say from the beginning, I am here to look at that information that you have, um, prepare evaluation based on intelligent, you know, valuation theory and the documents. <clears throat> but that I don't know you and I don't, I cannot put my reputation on the line for one case. 
And if you think that you are going to be able to determine what my testimony is, then I am not the right person for you. And so I try to set it up. And I usually try to do that with the attorney and the new, you know, that so that client is the one that keeps on coming into the picture, right? It's going to be the same attorney. They know how I work. But I'm like, let's have that first call with the client. Let's talk through. Because if it's a really... I don't know, type A business owner, you know, where they're just like, they make all the decisions in their life, in their world. And you come in, they're like, well, I know the business more than you. I can tell you what it's worth. And I would be like, that's great. If you could testify to that, that would be fabulous for your situation. You probably save a lot of money as well, but you can't. And so I don't mind working closely with clients, you know, to understand what's going on. But when it comes to our opinion, it really does have to hold water alone without somebody advocating for it. It just has to be, it has to make sense. Um, and, and that's how I've tried to set it up because I don't like giving back money. And I also don't like getting into a situation where they're saying, okay, can you just make it be $500,000 more? You know, can you, can we eke it up a little bit so that when we average it, you know, if they go really low and you go really high, then when we average it, it's going to be right around where it should be. And I kind of try to tell them, listen, if we do it really well, a judge is going to see past the, and, and we show the other expert as being more biased in some of their positions. Our goal is to really get the judge to go to our number, not to average, not to say, oh, okay, they both seem smart, you know, go in the middle. It's to really go towards our number because we we showed through documents, through third-party data, through all of these things, that this is the right way to look at this situation, you know, and that, that also means that you can't rely on the attorney to guide you through that process. Yeah. We always like to tend to make the, uh, the judge non-human. Um, and I think the, the joy of doing this for a long period of time is that judges, they, they know who is who. Um, so, you know, they're humans, they have opinions. If you come in and you consistently um, speak to your work product and it, and it appears that you're authentic and it doesn't look like you're trying to sway in one, one direction or another, um, and you do that consistently, then after a period of time, the judge is going to rely more upon what you're saying than someone who's doing the opposite. So we have this tendency to just say, well, you know, if we go in at a million and they're at 2 million, the judge is just going to say it's a million five. That's not always the case. Um, the same with attorneys, you know, uh, there are attorneys that won't work with me because I want, they can't control my, my resulting value. And they know that. And that's fine with me. Um, which I guess leads to why I can say when he asked, you know, have you ever felt like you're on the wrong side of the case? Uh, no, I don't. And the reason why is because I'm not trying to come to a their side or, or my side. I'm trying to come up with the, the general value about what I think it's worth. And I don't have attorneys that pressure me on that right. to where I have to take the position of if I'm on the right side or the wrong side. Right. If I run into a situation that my friend was in, then I go back to the attorney and I say, I know we originally discussed this was what I was the work product that I was going to provide. But based upon the fact that I can't get information and I understand that you guys as attorneys are doing what you need to do 
in the grand scheme of things, if you can't provide me with that info, we might need to switch up what I'm testifying on and what my opinion will be. Yeah. And if you don't feel comfortable talking about devil's advocate, talking about like other positions that could be taken, what, what is the other expert? Cause you know, as an expert, it's part of it is about presenting your own uh, value, right? The other mm -hmm. is trying to think ahead and say, okay, where are the areas that another expert could push too far, right? Could still be subjective, you know, cause there are some, there are some areas where there is no right way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying, I'm trying to think, okay, what is the ex other expert going to do? Like, how can I build in that we deal with that issue? You know, like if another expert's going to do a market approach, well, if I don't even have a market approach in there, they're going to present something. I really can't just say, oh, they're wrong. Right. But I could present other data that then says, well, I don't think they're wrong. I think that they pulled the data that they wanted to, because here's the data that I was able to pull that has situations that they didn't like or, or something like that, you know, so it is kind of thinking ahead, but also, um, you know, in some of these litigation cases, you know, all this focus is on the expert report, but there's actually other areas that, you know, an expert can, uh, provide value, and it's called a rebuttal report. And so can you kind of tell us a little bit more about like rebuttal reports, rebuttal witnesses, the rebuttal process, and how a client might benefit from this type of service? Because I think we sometimes do it automatically in a case, but there is a more uh, formal way that you can get an expert involved if maybe, you know, and this is sometimes in probably commercial litigation that you'll see it more that you'll have a rebuttal report or commercial damages case or something like that. So maybe you could walk us through this. Sure. So on, on rebuttal experts, um, it, there's really two categories for, for experts that I'm going to talk about. And so you've got your testifying expert, which is where the, the, the attorney engages you to be the person that comes up with the damages amount and you get up and testify and the other side knows that you're involved and the set the other. Um, the other one is a consulting expert and that's where the attorney uh, engages you, but he doesn't need to uh, divulge that information to the other side. So he can use you to consult and ask questions to and, and, um, and other things and maybe do calculations in the background that they can use uh, to uh, in, in court or, you know, any instance that they, need someone who knows what they're talking about, but they don't want to um, uh, reveal your identity yet. Um, so those are the two areas um, that you're looking at in terms of testimony work for um, experts. So when it comes to rebuttal reports, you're probably going to be a, a, at least if you're writing a report, you're probably going to be a testifying expert. Um, there are instances where they can use you as a consulting expert, which involves uh, questions and things like that. And we'll get to that here in a second. Um, so I guess what I'm going to be talking about first is the role of a rebuttal expert if you are a testifying expert. So the way it usually goes is you get a um, you present your report uh, by a certain deadline. Um, the other side submits their report. 
and you you do the awkward trade-off, you know, like in a parking lot somewhere, or not really, but um, it's, it's a trade-off of reports, and uh, so you get theirs, and you have a certain amount of time to read over it. So they present it to you as their expert to, okay, so we received this report. We don't know what to do with it. Can you read it and tell us what's wrong with it? So as an expert, uh, you, you, you take that report, you read through it, and you make some, some notes, whether it's evaluation or, or uh, some type of litigation damages uh, report. Um, so to me, there are certain areas uh, or, or categories uh, that an expert or a rebel expert plays. Um, Overall, your your objective is to highlight the errors in the report. So you read over the report, you come up with what the the errors are that you find, and you make notes of those. Um, the second area is to provide an opposing view. So you know that's different than than reading over their report and highlighting where they messed up. You take it one step further, and you say, okay, this is where they messed up, and this is what I would have done. So essentially, you're almost writing another report but it's based upon their report. So you're saying, you know, here, here are the items that they messed up on. I would have done X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and maybe you come out to a resulting value and ending value. Maybe you don't, but you're just providing alternatives um, for the attorney to use when asking questions to um, their expert. Um, one thing I like to do when I do rebuttal reports is I like to narrow the scope um, to only what I disagree with. So what I don't want to do is go through and talk about their report in every aspect, because what that does is that just creates another whole report for the judge to read. Again, my objective in uh, providing these reports is to provide something that the judge can take with them. And then that, that, that way they can read my opinion later. I'm not on the stand thinking on the fly of what my response was. And, and you know, maybe I got everything uh, out that I wanted to get out, but maybe I didn't. In these instances, I'm sitting in my office. I can go through it. I can write it out. I can have other people read it. Does this make sense? Um, if it doesn't, how do we reword it to, to say what I want it to say? So you have a, an environment which works well for you as a rebuttal expert to get your point across as to what you want to say. So when I sit down at one of these, I say, I go through, I read it all, I mark what I agree with. I mark what I disagree with. If, if there are certain areas that I agree with, there, there's two positions I might take. One, I just completely ignore it. The other one is to say that I agree with it. So if I see, you know, hey, this is what the information that they looked at. Uh, this is the, the number they came out with. And I'm like, like you said earlier, I can't really disagree with that. Um, I'll write in there. I'll go through and say I looked at the same information, double checked it. I agree. What that does is that allows the judge to see that you're not being combative on purpose. You're not just going after someone for the sake of going after them. So if you can say, hey, this is an area I agree with, this is an area I agree with, you have the appearance of, of uh, being considerate of what other people are doing and, and, and open-mindedness. Um, and then what I do is, I, so I have the sections of the parts that I agree with, and they can choose to skip right over that when he's reading the report. Um, and then I get into the areas that I disagree with. I'll go through, I'll say I disagree with it, and I will get down specifics as to how I would have calculated it. Um, and I'm just thinking of three recent rebuttals that I did um, a couple weeks ago, um, where we just get into the, the minute details of why there's 
theirs is wrong and why why ours is correct. So I think there's strength in writing a report that says I agree with these areas and I disagree um, with these other areas. Um, the second area that I want to talk about is attorney prep. So again, this kind of leads back to the you don't know what you don't know. Um, a lot of the times attorneys need preparation on these reports and they don't even know that they need it. Um, so any kind of questions that you can provide based upon the report. So there was a there was an, uh, an example. There's an attorney that I worked with. I'd never worked with him before. Uh, we get uh, a call from him. Hey, I need I've got this report. Can you look over it? Looked over it, wrote all the questions out of the problems that I saw. And then under those questions, I wrote, if they say yes, this is a follow up question. If they say no, this is a follow up question. So what I was doing was laying out a roadmap for them to go through and basically tear apart the other side. Now, I was a consulting expert, never had to get up there and, and do anything because all I did was write him questions. But to this day, every time that I work with this attorney, when the client, when his client's in the room, he's like, oh, I remember that time when I hired you and, and you wrote all this question. He's like, man, that was awesome. We we tore that guy apart. So providing any kind of um, questions to the attorneys, it adds a lot of value and it doesn't really take a lot of time to do. So that might be one area where, you know, you say, hey, attorney, I also provide this service um, in addition to, you know, my typical um, valuation or litigation services that just I consult with you and write up questions for you to ask while you're in court. And um, it, it's, it's worked great. And then one last area that you can help with them is providing them database. Uh, material. So you get evaluation and they're like, oh, we're comfortable with this. Oh, okay. So you're comfortable with it. But do you have access to those databases where they pulled their marketability information from? Well, no, I don't have that. Do you have access to uh, the, the transactions that he used in the in the marketability approach? Well, no, I don't have those. Would you be surprised if, if I pulled all the transactions that he said he pulled and, you know, he's using 10 of them. What if I told you there were 50? and he eliminated 40 of them and only used 10. Would that be a value to you? Well, yeah, that might be a value. Now you can ask him why he eliminated the other 40. Um, so we as professionals have access to these databases and they don't. Um, so again, that's another place that you can add value by just providing them a printout of that information. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that we, um, traditionally we'll do, and I don't know if you do this as an expert, but we will write the deposition questions for the other expert. We will write the direct um, testimony questions for ourselves, you know, and the attorneys will layer it into their own questions. But part of it is like, we know how best to walk down this path to either present the information or to kind of, you know, annihilate it in some respect. And so I think that that's where we come in as really helpful in this process. And some of this rebuttal we do just in general, right? But I think we have to be very careful because like you touched on earlier, everything that you do with an expert, because we are really um, there to help educate a jury, a judge, you know, the parties, 
that everything that you provide to us is available to be given to the court. So it is discoverable. And you have to be really careful about that. Even if you come in as a consulting expert, the moment you switch over to an, an actual expert witness, everything that you did with that client from the beginning could be discoverable. Now, certain states, certain attorneys, federal uh judges, different from state judges and things like that, will protect some of your work product, may protect some of your emails to attorneys and things like that. But for the most part, you have to be really careful in what you're doing and how you're presenting that information. So I think that that's one area. But in general, you know, what if somebody is interested in starting to provide rebuttal services, you know, how do you think they can go about doing that? Or how can an attorney kind of find people that would be available to do that? Well, I think first to address what you what you just said, I guess two things. One is, yes, work product is is discoverable, but it's usually only the work product that you use in your report. So, for example, if I requested your work product for your transactions that used in the market approach, I wouldn't get all 50, I would get 10. So you're producing what you used, it's just you're not showing what you didn't use. And that there's a big difference in that because if I, as an attorney, presented the additional 40 and said, why didn't you use this? Well, then that might change the, 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 the game for you as an expert. Whereas if I just relied on what you turned over, then it looks like, well, I don't have much to question because she used all of them. So that's one issue with the work product and how you can add value as an expert. That's either testifying expert or a consulting expert. Um, but one thing you did bring up is, is, is the questioning and writing the questions for the other side. You know, nothing will throw you off faster than an attorney asking a question that doesn't make any sense. So they'll ask you a question. And you're like, and it, it's, it's best if it's even your attorney, because you want to act like you know what they're saying. But if it doesn't make any sense, then you're like you get this deer in the headlight look of hopefully you're going to understand that. I don't know what you just said. Can you rephrase it? And you might try to rephrase it, uh, you know, ask them to rephrase it multiple times. And it's just not making sense. So that's the value in um, in writing your own questions, because if the opposing expert asks that, you just say that don't make any sense. I, I don't I don't know what you're asking. If you're sad, you don't want to say, it. well, that don't make any sense. I don't know what you're talking about. So there is value in writing those um, uh, the questions for your uh, your attorney. Um, as far as getting into the rebuttal services, honestly, I think, like you said, it just it's part of the game. I think it's part of the whole process. So um, one way I think really the only way that you can get into it if you're not providing it is just to advertise that you're doing it. Um, but to me, if I'm an attorney, I'm going to ask the question of if, if you haven't testified before, or you haven't been involved in litigation, are your questions going to be really, are they going to be valuable to me? Um, or is it just going to be basically me writing the questions because, um, you, you haven't had any experience in doing this work. So I think first, what you need to do as an attorney is you need to look at the person that you're asking to do the work. Have they done any testimony work in the, in the past? Have they done any litigation work in the past? Because if you if they haven't, you're likely to get just surface questions that just don't really hit home. Um, they're not they don't have the experience to know what kind of questions to ask in what scenario. Um, and then the, the attorney prep. Um, 
I, I think that comes along with more of doing the work rather than just being hired to write questions. Um, the attorney prep is probably more in line with, um, you know, I'm going to be on the testifying expert. I'm going to help you prepare for, for asking me questions, but as, as well as asking the other side questions. So that's a hard area to get into if you're not actually doing the litigation work, because I think that those kind of go hand in hand um, with each other. Well, and you said something also um, previously when we were talking about about getting nervous on the stand. I do remember when when I first started out and this was like, you know, almost probably going on 17, 18 years ago. I mean, it would be gut wrenching. Like I would not, you know, like I wouldn't sleep. I would start getting prepped and da, da, da. And then I started to realize the more you kind of stay in your lane, you know, you pick a couple different areas that you're going to specialize in. And then when somebody comes in and asks me, hey, can you do like, I don't know, something that just isn't in my wheelhouse, I feel more comfortable saying, no, why don't I refer you to somebody else? Because the headache that it's going to take to do that case when I'm not quite sure about all the specifics, uh, like for example, um, patent infringement, just not a space that I go into. And I know a couple really smart guys that um, love it, right? It, but I think there's enough in there that I just don't know what I don't know. And that's when you'll get caught on the stand. Whereas mm -hmm. if I tell somebody, hey, you flip houses or you do surgery or you, uh, you know, you're a chef, whatever. Could you testify to how you build a house? And they would be like, yeah, of course I can. I'm like, okay, well, that's what we're doing. Like, we're not testifying on things that we don't know. We're trying to testify on things we do know. And we're staying in that lane and it gets us better and more comfortable with continuing to do work in that lane. Um, but absolutely, I think that it's going to be hard to be a rebuttal witness and not because if you're just doing it to not testify, I get it. You know, like I think everybody would want to do this type of work if they didn't have to testify. Yeah. But the beauty is in honing your skill, your skills in testimony. And now we have the added co complexity of testifying like this, you know, right. and yeah. and so do you have it? You know, I told an attorney a couple of weeks ago, I said, listen, you better have your stuff together because you're going to make me look bad if you're stumbling around. Um, you know, looking for documents or exhibits and things like this. Yeah, oh, okay, okay, okay. I got it. I got it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the biggest dangers is is hiring a professional who will do all of it, who will do everything, because literally they're putting their reputation on risk every time you get up there on the stand. So if you're hiring somebody who will do patent infringement and do you know damages in in you know this industry and that industry and and do all kinds of work. If they're not great at it, then as an attorney, I wouldn't want to hire them. I want to hire someone who is great at what they do. You know, let them do what they're good at. That's always my saying. If if someone comes to me with, you know, hey, I need you to do this. I'm like, I'm not good at this. Let's send you over to this person who knows what they're doing because, A, they'll be a lot better at it. And, B, they'll be a lot cheaper at it. Um, so yeah, that's and there's. And there's certain things that we do in valuations that people could say, oh, well, you're, are you an expert at that? Are you an expert at that? No, I'm an expert at the valuation. Mm -hmm. But if you are, are, if the entire case is kind of hinged upon a 
owner's compensation amount or a working capital amount or a something, if there's something that is so, you know, and in commercial damages, it could be something different. But if it is so important to the case that literally that piece there are times when I've said, okay, let's pull in an expert for that piece, right? Mm-hmm. That's all they do. And then I rely upon that information for the valuation, because then I think you're actually, you're actually creating value for the attorney, because most of the time what attorneys know, we've already talked about this, is they will not admit when they don't know something. I think that that as an expert can be the worst thing that you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know it, and you put yourself out there as like, well, I'll just figure it out. Like, this is not the place for imposter syndrome. This is not the place for you to be like, you know, we always do fake it till you make it. Not the place, not Mm -hmm. in litigation. If you really don't know, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got a patent infringement, and you're like, I'll just figure it out. The, The correct answer to that attorney is, you know what? I never have testified on that. I think I could figure it out. Maybe I have a couple other resources that would be better or we could work together. But you have to be very clear to people in this space when you do not know something because you have to give them the opportunity at the beginning to say, you know what, Uh, this is everything. Our case relies upon somebody knowing this exactly right. And Mm -hmm. then I would say, well, I'm probably not your person, but let me refer you to somebody. And then I refer them to people that I know and trust in this space. Um, And then they, that actually looks good on you too, you know? So yes, maybe you didn't get the work, but that could be an opportunity for you to sit in with that attorney still and be a rebuttal, you know, offer up additional value in the way of a consulting expert, but to be honest when something is out of your range. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in a situation like that, you just built, built rapport with two different individuals. The attorney came to you and said, I have this case. Are you good at it? You said, no, I, I, I can't say that I've done work in this area. Um, I might have a little bit of knowledge, but I'm going to leave that up to you to decide. You put it back on them. That, that says that you're being honest and upfront with them. But then you also contacted an individual or put them in contact with an individual that does. So you also built some kind of rapport with that individual, that professional, who at some point in the future might send work over to you because, you know, they're just not good at, uh, you know, I did a lot of dealership work. They're not really good at doing automobile dealers. So, you know, they might shoot it up back over to me. You've 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 shown to be truthful in the in the eyes of the attorney, as well as built a, a relationship with this other professional who might send you additional work. So I think the grand uh, scheme in the grand scheme of things, what we're trying to say is, you know, if you are just honest and you're being and you're doing honest work, providing an honest opinion, not being biased or pushed in a certain direction by any individual and what your resulting value or damages amount is, truly your opinion, then it's really hard to go wrong. I mean, you, you might get a little jittery, get up on the, on the stand. I'll admit it happens every single time. Um, but like I said, after a few minutes, it settles down because you realize, Hey, you're not going to die on the stand and B um, you're testifying about what you did. It shouldn't be that complicated. Will they have questions? Will they have alternate scenarios? Yes, they will but you didn't do that. And that, that wasn't, you didn't consider their scenario and you just say, I didn't consider that. No, that wasn't part of my work product. Well, and there's my value. It could. 
Yeah. But anything could change my value. Yeah. And there have been times where I've been honest with an attorney and, and they're like, yeah, well, that's okay. That's not the biggest issue in the case. So as long as you feel comfortable that you can pull data or you can pull information, that's great. We'll use you. But some of the beginning nervousness about testifying is understanding just the logistics, right? So you're there trying to testify for an issue. And and at the beginning, sometimes you feel like everything is contingent upon your um, testimony as you become more seasoned, you understand that you're just a bit player in the in the big <laughs> scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, and, I'll tell you the other day, I, you said something about testifying via Zoom. Uh, the other day was the first time I'd done it, and I was more concerned about making sure that everything was set up right and that everybody could hear me and, and that I logged into the right place and had my computer to where I could pull up my information. And that was what made me nervous. Once I was in, I was like, okay, this, is, this isn't a big deal. Um, I well, actually heard it. And some of the courts are not using Zoom. They're using other platforms for each of the courthouses. And so it is kind of a new situation. But I think that's part of the piece. Like once you then understand the cadence of your testimony, how to take a pause after each question, how to listen to the question that's being asked, because half the time, especially with attorneys that, you know, may be new at this, they're not great questions. You know, if I haven't created the questions, then they're probably not going to be that great. Um, you know, and so just listening, but once you develop kind of your cadence and your um, flow to testify, then it's just being really comfortable. You know, I used to think of a hundred million different questions that they could ask me on the stand. Now I kind of, am like, okay, where are my weaknesses? What is my explanation? And how am I going to move quickly through this? Because the more you make it simple, there really isn't, you know, like they're not going to question me eight hours on a comprehensive valuation. Like I'm going to make it so that they understand it quickly and we're not going to be there all day, you know, but I think that those are the nuances that you have to hone yourself and be more comfortable with that. Um, or else you're not going to be successful in this. If you get really irrational or amped up, right? Yeah. Like, I kind of go into every testimony like this is not my circus. This is not my monkeys. This is not my life. This is not my health, right? This is not my children. This is not my husband. And I do, I kind of do that mantra because I think we think that we can go and testify and have a perfect testimony. There's yeah. never going to be a perfect testimony. Like the other attorney is going to make us look foolish in some capacity, but it's, it may not be, um, it may not be reasonable. Like he might just have gone down the wrong path and you have to redirect it. And that's one key I think that people could maybe, you know, like when when I'm being asked questions that are obviously misleading and obviously are like honing in on something that's not important, um, especially when it's opposing counsel, you know, they could ask me yes or no questions. One way I signal to my attorney that they need to come back around and ask the right question or an open-ended question is I just keep on answering it. And I just keep on saying, you know, I, they'll say, well, tell me yes or no. Is this cap rate too high? And I'll say, I don't believe it's too high. And here are the reasons. Oh, I asked you a yes or no. That's fine. That I wasn't there to actually enunciate my other reasons. I was there to signal to my attorney, call me back on redirect. You know, so I mean, at some point when you can actually get over the beginning nuances of sitting, you know, where you sit, how you 
how you present, how you do all this, how you get over the nerves, it really becomes adrenaline. It becomes like I get in a zone and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm focused on the job. I'm listening. I'm doing all these things. Um, but I'm also then doing signaling to my attorney without signaling. And that I think, you know, you start to work on over time and things like that, but you got to get started. And there's plenty of opportunities yeah. out there. Yeah. Um, I think one place where it will help with the nerves is um, you have to realize that a, you said it a minute ago about the questions are they going to question me, you know, for four hours on this, you're thinking through things about your valuation from a valuation perspective. They don't know the questions to ask. Most of them don't. Right. Uh, most attorneys don't know the questions to ask and how to get that detailed. So you're putting yourself through all this stress because you're coming up with all these questions in your head that you would ask yourself. No one else is going to ask you that unless another, uh, the other side had an appraiser go through and write, you know, 50 pages worth of questions, which is highly unlikely. Um, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect that can help with the nerves is if you realize that it is, it really 90% of it is just a show. You know, I can think of a deposition that I was in where, you know, we go on break and, I'm laughing with the attorney on the other side because I know him. And, um, you know, the attorneys that I'm friends with the attorneys that have hired me. So we're all laughing about stuff and going over personal life stuff. And then when it's back on record, it is like the curtains open. And I mean, there was a time where he was standing up screaming across the table at me. And if you can look at it like, you know, it, it's a friend yelling at you or or something along those lines and not make it personal, it actually it's not even remotely as stressful as, as it once was. And it almost becomes humorous. And if you can just keep your calm and just know that it's all a show right. um, most of the time, then, then it just makes life a whole lot easier when you're testifying. Yeah. It's a, a lot of it's a show and a lot of it is misunderstanding, you know, the terms and an attorney trying to be very smart about something, but you know, you mix up the words of assets and liabilities and you're asking a completely different question, you know? And so I think that, um, if you stay in your lane, you hone your skills and you testify, you know, when I worked for firms, I, I would always be put on cases and then I'd have partners and I'd have other people like everybody's telling me like what my testimony is going to be. And I think when I started to be able to like choose the cases that I worked on and the clients that I worked on, because there's some clients that I, if I see the red flags at the beginning and I'm like, this is not, this is not going to be good. It's not going to be good for my reputation. And I think you have to be mindful of the people that you work with, because that does become, you know, that does carry forward with you. And maybe, you know, at the beginning, you might take on any case, but as you get a little bit more into it, you're like, oh, yeah, that that attorney will throw me under the bus if he could or, Absolutely. you know, things yeah. like that. So, yeah, you know, you know, the ones that, that you should work with and the ones you shouldn't work with. Yeah. Absolutely. And they know the experts to work with and yep, not to work with. And a lot of times we're not the fit for them either because they just right. want people to say it's $5 million. Here's Bingo. the number. Walk yep. away. <laughs> but you, you've said that you are at a new firm. So maybe you could tell us more about your firm, um, the services you provide and how people can reach you. We're going to give them links to your contact information. Mm -hmm. But if you want to talk a, to, um, cause we both probably maybe specialize in different areas. So tell us more about you. Yeah. So I, uh, I work for a firm, uh, it's called Wyndham Brennan. It's in Atlanta. Um, 
it's a accounting firm. We we also do litigation, uh, valuation, healthcare stuff. We do all kinds of consulting work. Um, but the area that I specialize in is I do a lot of of litigation work. So that's that's going to be valuation, um, you know, marital dissolution. I'm doing a lot of economic damages and, and lost profits right now. Um, I don't know why that all of a sudden has picked up, but I've got a lot of very large cases that I'm working on. Um, I've worked on huge. Um, uh, if I name if I name some of the companies, I mean they're they're they are the largest companies in the nation. Um, worked on some of those litigation cases in the past. Um, historically, I've done a lot of dealership automobile dealership valuation work. Um, not so much anymore. I'm not at a firm that specializes in that work anymore, but um, have a lot of experience in that. So, you know, I've done this work for about 20 years or so. Um, been testifying uh, a good amount of that time as well, um, and that's that's pretty much me. I mean, I, like I said, I specialize probably more in the um, divorce arena, marital dissolution arena, uh, than than a lot of other people. But it's kind of where I've hung my hat at this point. Yeah, we do a lot of divorce too. So, and and I think it's the same process. You have to be kind of level-headed, not really buy into the emotion and just kind of do your job regardless of everybody screaming around you, right? Yeah, you got to realize that you're you're uh you're getting in with people in the worst time of their life usually. And uh so everyone hates you. Uh, so if you yeah. can be okay with that, then then you can pretty much be okay with anything. <laughs> then you should be fine. You should get yeah. into this line of work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just you lose your soul after a while and you don't even care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully this is the right phone number to reach you. Um and or one of the phone numbers. And, um, you know, we appreciate you, Matt, for being on the show. And I think this was a good discussion for valuation people and for attorneys, because I think you got to know who you're getting involved in. Um, because these, I mean, in commercial litigation, you could be involved for a year or two, same with divorce. Like this isn't oh, yeah. something that just, you know, you see us for a few months, and then we're gone, like, we're going to be hanging out with you for a while. Oh, so yeah. The one I was talking about with the large company, it was seven years and they settled. They didn't even go to court. So, I mean, it's that's a long haul right there. Yeah, we used to do some commercial litigation for like oil companies and mm -hmm. such. And it would it would be years. And then we would get to court. And one of the big ones, like it was thrown out the first day of court for something that the other side did. And I was like, what? No. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was a great, it was a favorable thing for our client and, uh, you know, everybody was happy and I was like, yeah. but, but, um, can we, but, but we wanted to testify. We, we wanted to do some more, you know, but yeah. those, those long ones are the, those long ones are the fun ones because you look back at what you did like seven years ago and you're like, did I, I don't remember even doing that. And so you have to refresh your memory on what all you've done. So it's, well, and, and some of them, I've had attorneys come back like years later and they're like, do you remember those? And I was like, I have the picture of these sheets like permanently in my memory. You know, I was like, I could draw them right now because we had to look at daily sheets for certain like gas stations and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I remember everything. Even if it was like a decade ago, I would love to boot that out of my memory. Yeah, I mean, I've got one right now that has it. I didn't know Excel went this high, but it has almost a hundred million lines of information. Oh Imagine my going gosh. Through that. That's fun. No, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Matt. We appreciate yeah. you. And, right. uh, we will have you back again. I appreciate you having me on. Good talking right. with you.